0: me to do a summing up, actually, which has meant that I haven't enjoyed the last uh, two hours as much as I would have done otherwise, <laughs> since I've had to be scribbling away. Um, but um, about ten years ago, an English friend of mine became an American citizen, uh, and uh, congratulated him, and he said, uh, well, yes, but I just hope I haven't leapt from 40 years of decline to another 40 years of decline. <laughs> and, uh, and I have to say that any English person who's lived in America in the last few years has horrible symptoms of deja vu as you see some of the same patterns that occurred in British politics over a period of time re re um, re um, repeating themselves here now I think there are reasons for that as several other people have said there's um, a a real continuity between the political traditions of Britain and America I mean obviously there was a great rupture but in all sorts of of other ways um, that the two countries reflect one another in political and moral and social questions Um, uh, I always used to say as an explanation of this that um, America was the universalization of the English political tradition of freedom, just as um, Christianity has an attempt to universalize uh, the ethics of Judaism. Um, Now, um, in recent years, there's an entire entire, uh, academic school, uh, which someone here present is a member of, Uh, called the Anglo-Sphere School of Historians, David Hackett Fisher, the author of Albee and Seed in America, Uh, Alan McFarlane, Origins of English Individualism in Britain, Claudio Veles, who who takes the same view from a a, a, a Chilean standpoint, Robert Conquest, and so on and so forth. And what they see is that the American exceptionalism is the development of English exceptionalism, uh, enriched and infused with traditions from uh, other immigrants, over years, but those original traditions are um, different patterns of uh, family formation, uh, greater mobility, geographical and uh, social, um, um, uh, different kinds of um, uh, uh, I'm sorry, um, different different structures of of agriculture and so on, which um, differentiate England from the rest of Europe, and in America, of course, with the greater opportunities given to America, uh, given to Americans by um, the, the opportunities of the country uh, developed into um, uh, in a sense flourished more effectively and uh, so it makes sense therefore to look quickly uh, at what's happened in the last um, sort of 100 years in England. Well I'm going to break it down into four simple um, arrangements from 1906 I mean if you, if you assume that English civilization was at its height at about 1900 um, then there follows from that. Uh, a lot of criticism of uh, English liberal civilization emerges from the 1890s onwards, and we see, in the, with the victory of the liberals in 1906, the, the beginnings of a welfare uh, liberalism approach, a, a change in English liberalism uh, from uh, classical liberalism to welfare liberalism. Uh, that develops uh, right the way through the end of the Second World War, when it becomes a much more statist Approach with the, the, the with the accept, with the victory of Labour in the 45 election, and the acceptance of <coughs> social democracy, the social democratic consensus, that breaks down. Uh, this galloping statism breaks down in 1979, and between 1979 and 2002, you do have a kind of a rebirth of English liberal civilization under the Thatcher period. And it goes right the way up to the end of Labour's first term uh, after '97, because Labour accepted um, the Tories' um, economic and financial uh, projections. They, they effectively maintained the kind of restraint on, on the state that Thatcher and Major had introduced. So much so that in um, uh, 2000, um, Andrew Gamble a man of the left, distinguished political writer, just recently appointed um, um, professor of politics at Cambridge, could write that among the two major traditions that were contending for success in England, one was in a sense a development of continental uh, regulatory centralizing, not authoritarianism, but certainly statism, uh, which he more or less favored, and the other was what he called Anglo-America, which is the ideas uh, which uh, that, that um, um, property should be secure, uh, that trade should be free, that capital movements should be free, um, that there should be, in general, a liberal uh, attitude to uh, politics and intellectual life. Uh, I've missed one key point there, um, security of property, oh, uh, sound finance. (laughs) There uh, there should be, uh, sound finance was absolutely central uh, to this vision of a a good order, good international order and a good domestic order. And Gamble says to his own kind of distress, he said it's quite extraordinary that this doctrine, which really established itself by the middle of the 18th century, should today in 2000 be the dominant world civilization still. Uh, uh, he was not obviously thinking this was the result of English efforts recently, but he was, uh, it was obviously um, an American led civilization at this point. But there had been real continuity, so that in a sense, um, a party in British politics uh, could feel itself the representative of that central world civilization, namely the Conservative Party. Um, That would not be true of the present conservative leadership, um, uh, and things have changed, obviously, in the last 10 years because of the financial crisis and uh, the Iraq War and so on. But uh, if we think only back 11 years, we could look at the world and say that um, um, uh, Anglo-American ideas of sound finance, security of property, and free trade were the dominant world civilization, and that is really quite a remarkable thing. Now... Let's look at the ways in which, in particular, a series of ways in which, in America, uh, oh, I should, sorry, let me make one final point. The fact that Britain went through a very bad period from about 45 to 79 and emerged on the other side, and that Thatcher went from the winter of discontent to making Britain the fourth largest economy in the world, that tells you something about the possibility of the return of vigor and the power of these ideas. Now, let me examine the ways in which, in this country, um, I think, um, think you, we can argue and have argued today, and what I'm saying is obviously a response to what's been said from the platform, uh, things have gone wrong. Well, the first and most obvious point is that we've witnessed, in, uh, we, we heard of some horrifying figures demonstrating financial decline or the grand indebtedness. Uh, and these figures are really daunting, and if they're not changed, they would. Sure, not just a decline but eventually collapse. But we should reflect that these are the results of policy. It's not that they, they're accidents which have happened to us in nature or that they emerge directly from uh, 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 political genetic code as Americans or as Englishmen. Uh, they're the results of deliberate policy uh, they can be changed by a combination of policies. And that combination was mentioned by Jim Bennett, um, changing the retirement dates for Social Security, reforming the contributions, um, uh, reaching, rescheduling our debts internationally uh, for a breathing space, and so on and so forth. Uh, uh, I, I think the, 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 the debate between Jim and Andy is an important one, exactly how you do this. But it's a second-order debate. The fact is... it there are ways of dealing with these things. They're painful, they're difficult, they'll take a long time. It took the British about 60 years to pay off their First World War debts, but they did pay them off in the end, and the period in which they were paying off was one of of erratic but general increase in wealth and income for the country. So we shouldn't be spooked by those things. Now, there is an objection uh, which I I want to look at, and that is that it's a political one. Yes, you say we can do all these things, it's been done before and so on. Um, but the population does not accept cuts in government benefits. Well, very quickly, uh, housing benefit was absolutely eliminated under the conservatives, and that was a very substantial part of the welfare state um, under the Thatcher government. Um, government pers- uh, spending as a percentage of GDP uh, has gone up and down. It's recently gone up. and Germany, it's gone down. Um, union power, which Thatcher humbled... Uh, was seen in the 70s as an even bigger problem and a more insuperable one than government spending is today. And uh, it it was thought to make the country entirely ungovernable. Now, Mrs. Thatcher didn't deal with all the problems uh, of the society. Uh, Statesmen don't choose the problems they'll deal with. uh, History deals them an agenda, and they have to cope with it. She was dealt with the problem of union power, Um, and and with uh, the problem of the Soviet Union. She dealt with those. Other things she didn't entirely deal with, and I was involved in some of that, and I I know and regret it. But the fact is, um, you have to to deal with one thing at a time. So in a sense, therefore, I would say, financial decline is technically the easiest and least difficult of the problems that we have to solve. and um, uh, it's not that the, the, the solutions are intellectually difficult. It's just that they require courage and the willingness to be unpopular, something which seems to be beyond most modern politicians. Now, let's look at the next one, economic decline. Um, this is the next kind of problem. Uh, here, we must divide the notion of economic decline in two. The first is productivity and innovation. Now, Roger, I think, in his opening remarks, demonstrated that in this respect, America is not declining at all, but remains ahead of the the pack. I didn't hear him contradicted in the course of the afternoon, so I'm going to assume that we generally agree on that point. But there is another element in economic decline. Entrepreneurial vigor can coexist with a different kind of decline, namely, the seizing of wealth and income from the people who create it by rent-seeking groups. Um, A name not mentioned today, to my surprise actually, was that of Manka Olson, The Economist, who wrote two relevant books. The first relevant very much to Andy's uh, speech, and that that was the logic of collective action, why it's hard to, um, why it's easy for groups to get advantages and harder for the mass of the population to take the benefits back. But the second was the decline of nations. Now, um, he argued that the decline of nations from uh, good economic performance relatively to one falling behind other nations was explained by the fact that over a long period of peace, um, a state would tend to develop, a country would tend to develop a series of alliances between rent-seeking groups to extort privileges from the rest of the population. Extort rents in the form perhaps um, of um, uh, restrictive practices. If you are a union uh, of special privileges, um, if you are a, a printers union, you the only people who can join the union are your children, um, uh, bankers uh, in the city of London, the city, had various uh, special arrangements. and over a period of time, um, co- collaboration between these different groups produces a great fabric of uh, rent-seeking and privilege, which distort, which both um, uh, uh, reduces the production of wealth and what wealth is produced, it diverts uh, from those who created uh, to, the, to the groups themselves and to their clients. Now how do we solve that? Well, also it's a bit discouraging in that regard. Um, uh, he said that the best way to solve this was to be defeated in war. <laughs> uh, 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 because um, what happened then was the, the victorious power came in and swept away all these arrangements and started again. And the German uh, the German um, uh, record rather it confirms that. It's important not to make a mistake about this. He's not suggesting that defeat in war is a good thing because all your factories have been bombed. No, that's a cost. You have to, you have to replace them. Um, but he, but, the, but the, what defeat does, it... it Um, It takes away all the special privileges and arrangements that hold the economy back. Civil war does much the same thing, but more painfully. Um, uh, But uh, Thatcher demonstrated... I mean, he was pessimistic about the ability of of, um, a democratically elected government being able to come in and get rid of these privileges. And I think Thatcher demonstrated that he was wrong on that. Not, as I say, that she got rid of every privilege... But she got rid of the most oppressive and obstructive privileges. And uh, so she demonstrated that this uh, could be done, and in in the main it should be done. Uh, And America, in this particular case, starts out with an advantage because productivity and innovation have not yet been dramatically held back by this uh, fabric of privilege. And and therefore, in a sense, you're starting at a higher plane. Now then we come to the third uh, possible cause of decline, uh, and that is the, the, the torn tears in the social fabric, and this is I think uh, a key point. Uh, I'm not a Tocqueville scholar, but I think uh, perhaps Simon can get the exact quote here. I'm trying to remember. Uh, Tocqueville says he's writing here, interestingly, not about America but about England where he says, when I look at the great improvements made in England, when I look at the docks that have been uh, dug, when I look at the roads that have been built, when I look at the factories that have been erected, I don't have to say, what special local circumstances, what some, what something, is there something in the climate, is there some environmental explanation for this? No, I look for the explanation in the Englishman himself. He has done this, and I think that uh, that, that argument applies even more powerfully, obviously, to the United States. But Um, and indeed I think this is one of these rare occasions when I agree with the World Bank because uh, if you look at the World Bank's study of the third world, they concluded that the real explanation of of those countries which have done well in the third world was they had intact families, low crime um, and good work attitudes. Yes, they had a lot of other things too but those things were the underlying fundamental explanation. And this made Charles Murray's talk the most depressing talk I've ever enjoyed. (laughs) (laughs) Um, but the fundamentals uh, of a virtuous and prosperous society um, he demonstrated are being eroded and, and seriously eroded and mysteriously so in my case in mystery to me that is um, because uh, what that means is, as, as Burke among, and the founding fathers too have pointed out is uh, if it is true that a free society requires virtuous citizens uh, to exercise the dispersed power, and to deliver uh, the, the effort to produce, to make life better, then a government, a free society, uh, a society which uh, has got an unvirtuous citizenry um, is going to require an authoritarian elitist government. Uh, he doesn't argue for this. He's just warning you that, uh, Burke's just warning the reader that that will be the end result. Um, so, uh, so, therefore, what, when Charles was talking about the social fabric, He's talking about the fundamental problem we face, and and that is getting worse, apparently. Now, I I detect some um, thin shreds of hope here. Um, (laughs) Some things can be reversed. A word which wasn't mentioned here was immigration at least I don't think it was. I was out of the room for about five minutes. I don't think we can remove immigration entirely from the problem of American decline. I'm not saying it's the major source of it, but it is an important source of it because um, for most of its history, not all of it, for most of its history, America's had periods of high immigration, periods of low. It's not had a steady number. When immigration is too high, uh, what you get is the society finds it difficult to accommodate culturally and to some extent economically. It drives down the wages of the lower paid, but it also introduces a kind of discordance into society. People differ about values much more dramatically. And, um, the, and, and I think we've had a period since 1968, 1969, uh, when the 65 Act began to be introduced, we've had a period in which immigration has been a serious factor, uh, making... Uh, American society less cohesive, uh, less comfortable, less certain of its own values. And indeed, you get this ridiculous situation now in which um, has happened in one city uh, when, um, uh, 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 when mature men were accused of uh, having sex with um, underage girls from the Hmong community. The police said, well, it's, you know, it's their culture and that's a, that demonstrates and the same thing happens in England all the time it happens with worse cases in England it's happened with, um, with uh, the crime of um, honor killing in which the police have shown an evident reluctance to investigate, that's changing now but they've shown an evident reluctance to investigate honor crimes because they felt somehow this was an intrusion into the independent life of the, of the Muslim communities, of Islamic communities. Now um, Obviously, uh, the, in, in immigration leads to diversity. Diversity is now the current mantra. It's the, it's, it is the organizing principle of the society in, in elite terms. And yet, as, as was demonstrated uh, by Robert Putnam, the problem with diversity is that it not only reduces trust between different ethnic groups in a society, but it actually reduces trust within ethnic groups because people learn cease to trust each other. Is there a solution to this? Of course there is. The traditional one was Americanization. You insist that the immigrants adapt to your customs, you teach them your language, you uh, teach them your history, you encourage in them an identification with the nation and its traditions, and over a period of time, and a relatively short time in my view, um, uh, then you have a society which is multi-ethnic, but not multicultural. Multicultural. And, and that society can function and can function well. But, it need, but we need to, to act in those terms, whereas we have, in fact, been regarding diversity as an unqualified virtue which had no problems and which should, if anything, um, that, uh, that diversity should run to multiculturalism as well as to multi-ethnicity and multi-faith um, elements. Um. The, uh, so that immigration can be reduced or controlled, and we can change our attitude uh, to diversity as such. Secondly, neo-Victorian social reform. Um, you know, the Victorians faced a situation at least as bad as our own, and they solved it. The, the British working class in 1800 was drunk out of its mind and drugged on laudanum. You could buy laudanum in any, uh, in any, in any store. Uh, read the late 18th century, early 19th century depictions of life in London and the major cities. They are horrifying. And what changed things was, um, an, well, a number of things, but um, the, the middle classes became the missionaries of a new morality. That morality in religious terms was Wesleyanism. In social welfare terms, it was hygiene. Um, in, um, moral t- in, in social terms, it was respectability. People pour scorn on Res- Victorian respectability. I think it's a curious thing The people who regard... Respectability as a tepid imitation of real virtue. And normally, the same people who find its inexacting requirements impossible to fulfil. <laughs> um, but so the thing is, um, uh, the we, 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 there is a possibility of, of social reform. Um, and the Victorians demonstrated it. The third is the point that I discussed with Charles. When he spoke, which is that America is a genuine social democracy in which Jack really is as good as his master, and certainly thinks so when it comes to exchanging views, and that—that is something that is still is still there, and as Charles said, is vibrant in the um, in the Tea Party. Now we come to what I think is the single biggest problem, and that is cultural self hatred all of the earlier things we've discussed today around the corner, they're hard problems, they're difficult, if they're not treated decline will become real and uh, even terminal Um, uh, but they are all curable, you can do something about them, Um, but the solutions are in every stage that are proposed, at every (coughs) stage uh, are thwarted um, by an extraordinary cultural self-hatred that grips the Western intelligentsia. Now, of course, this entire panel is composed of intellectuals, but we are traitors to our class. (laughs) And and we we were, in a sense, turned against it because we dislike uh, what the intelligentsia uh, wants to do to this society. The same thing is did to Russian society, by the way. Um, And this cultural self-hatred encourages all the social problems that America faces and resists all the attempts to solve them. Um, Multiculturalism is one aspect. (laughs) It seeks open borders, opposes official English rules, and so on. Social masochism um, wants to um, exalt, not simply to cope with, help, assist, but wants wants to make single parenthood um, uh, of the same status, value, and contribution to society as married parenthood. Um, Legal masochism is embodied in an entire attitude, and I think the uh, English will remember what um, writers like Christy Davis and uh, Digby Anderson have written in this, which is a, an attitude to society in which we refuse to punish the criminal, and because uh, we feel we have to take some action, we, decided to, we decide to add more regulations to the law-abiding. Um, and we, we want to regulate people um, um, who, who, are, who are no threat to anybody. Now, the... Um, This, this, this self-hatred which exhibits itself in all kinds of ways is the most important element in American decline it is also the most difficult to solve um, and um, particularly when as is the case it, the intelligentsia controls most of the institutions of education and debate but the US but there, are a vari- but there are various things and this is my <coughs> point truly really. um, there are various ways in which we can respond to it um, the, uh, the, the U.S. conservative movement has already generated an entire counter-establishment, um, Fox News, um, foundations like the AI and Heritage, um, the new criterion at a high level, to mount a continual uh, relentless count, intellectual counter-offensive on all these questions. The second reason for hope I've already given, it's the Tea Party. But I do say this, what is interesting, there are two things interesting about the Tea Party. The one, th- the one thing is the Tea Party itself, this extraordinary emergence of articulate um, uh, uh, local leaders um, um, with local support, making a strong case for the traditions of American political life at a time when the leaders of that political life seem um, unable to cope with the problems um, or, in, or are aggravating them. And the second interesting thing, and is the absolute torrent of hatred and vituperation that is directed against these people. The desire on the part of the intellectual leaders of society to demonstrate that they must be racists, they must be semi-fascists, they must be bigoted, I mean, the evidence for their faults is not very strong, actually. And, and those who, people who demonstrated these uh, qualities have been expelled from the movement. But there is a determination to brand them as socially unrespectable. And, and I think that what that suggests is that the other side, at least, to the Tea Party, realizes the threat and the importance of the issues. Uh, and America, and then finally, um, there, there is America's social democratic ethos. Um, uh, I think that, um, it, that you, you can't overestimate this as, as, a, as a possible element in the recovery of the society because uh, John Fonte has just demonstrated in his book that through a whole, the, a whole series of opinion polls that if you ask people questions about... Uh, Uh, loyalty to America, about the decency of the country, about its role in the world, about the Constitution, about the ideas associated with the Constitution, Um, um, you will find that um, generally by four to one, uh, Americans come down on the side of supporting the traditions of the country uh, and regarding it as an exceptional and an exceptionally fine place. Now, what's interesting is that although there are ethnic differences in these responses, that in almost all social groups you get the same, I won't say conservative response, I would say patriotic or loyal response. You get the same social response uh, of patriotism in all ethnic groups, and even in all political groups. But the, the group that is least um, um, affectionate and most resistant to patriotism uh, and to the traditional Americanism is the group of self-defined liberals? It's a political self-definition, which is John. John can fill you in on the details, but that, this, these, these, uh, this fact leaps out. So we're dealing, <coughs> uh, sorry, we're dealing in this with a, a political contest in which the other side is an American side. It's not, it's not a foreign. I mean, people may may describe it as wanting a European uh, America, but the fact is, that these people are all Americans to start with seem to me. Now, uh, I think, having said that, I, uh, I am obliged to offer you one small crumb of comfort, because I have suggested there's hope, but I've also suggested that, that, that these, are, these are Finnish hopes at the moment. And that's this. Um, bringing, what what, what um, is being proposed by the people who want to change America fundamentally is the cultural transformation of American society and it requires that cultural transformation at a deep level. Sam Huntington points out in his book for we that changing a nation's culture is an incredibly difficult thing to do. And um, again and again, uh, countries, a good example would be Turkey, which seem to have undergone a complete cultural transformation, turn out to return to the old ways over a period of time when the strongest pressures have been removed. So, um, one, and, and so, so changing a country in that way is difficult. Jim Bennett pointed out at a conference uh, we held, uh, I think about a year ago, something uh, on the other side. He pointed out, when Mrs. Thatcher came back into power, she set about removing the strains on British enterprise. She set about rem- making, re- reminding the British of their uh, old entrepreneurial virtues. And um, she didn't actually do... Uh, I mean, she didn't do anything forceful and positive to regenerate these virtues. She made it possible for people to exercise them. And within a very short period people were becoming their own bosses. They were founding their own companies. They were developing um, uh, they they were demonstrating uh, entrepreneurial virtues that most of us thought were not dormant but altogether dead. But they had only been dormant. And, and given the opportunity to flourish, the society began to demonstrate those virtues again. Now, that's, they were economic; they were the vigorous virtues—the virtues of enterprise, duty, self-reliance, hard work, saving for the future, and so on. Uh, they, they suddenly flowered again. Now, I think those virtues that are flowering in this society—you don't need, you need to protect them, perhaps, but you don't need to reinvigorate them or revive them. The virtues in this society, it's odd to say this about society as traditionally patriotic as America, is you have to revive faith, belief, and confidence in America and its institutions. You have to to do that. It's there, but it's the patriotism in the world today is the love that dare not speak its name. And you have to have the courage to go out and, and persuade people that they... And indeed, you have to do the most terribly difficult thing for a modern person. You have to be prepared to have a row at a dinner party. <laughs> I'm very fond of quoting. Many of you will, will know that I quote this often. Uh, William Dean Howells, the 19th century uh, man of letters, used to say that the problem for a critic is not making enemies but keeping them. <laughs> uh, that's part of what we try to do. This, this has been a terrific, uh, a terrific session. Um, thank you all for coming. And thank thanks you. to the. <laughs> I think you're absolutely right about it, Ron.